Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we get to discuss one of the most important figures in Arab history. The reign of the Ummah's latest Caliph will prove to be absolutely foundational to the new dynasty, and will take us several episodes to cover in its entirety. For now, we'll content ourselves with a proper introduction to the influential Caliph, and a closer look at his Caliphate and the challenges coming his way in episode 43, Al-Mansur. We sort of shot through the first five years of the Abbasid dynasty. It wasn't really intentional, Al-Saffah had his hands full with the transition, and then our coverage of that boardroom brawl last time got pretty feverish and left no room for supplemental commentary. As a result, we've been left with some gaps to fill, so this will be one of those episodes where the focus isn't on progressing with our narrative. Instead, we'll take an instructive look back and survey what lies ahead before proceeding something necessitated by Al-Mansur's transformative time in charge. There is a lot to say about this pivotal figure. In fact, I'll lay it all out for you now to give you a better idea of the structure of today's show. We'll open with the usual examination we subject new caliphs to, then give plenty of time to the many and important ways the caliphate had changed since the Abbasid revolution. Finally, we'll mention the major struggles Al-Mansur had to contend with, then spend our next few episodes covering each in more detail. With so much to get to today, we should just dive right in. Al-Mansur will keep us busy for a while, but for now I want him to share this spotlight with his predecessor, Al-Saffah. There really isn't a lot I want to add about our last caliph. I just felt bad about how abruptly we moved on from him, so I thought it would be good to bring him up even as we focus on his half-brother. Both were born in Humaymah between Walid I and Yazid II's reigns, so sometime between 715 and 722. While it's not really relevant, they were both named Abdullah, which I'm pretty sure is as strange as it sounds, as I don't often come across brothers with the same name in our sources. Their father was the Abbasid patriarch Muhammad ibn Ali, but each son was born to a different woman. Al-Saffah's mother was one of Abdul Malik's widows, a fact which underlines just how close these Qurayshi clans were to each other and dispels any fanciful notions that the Abbasids had been far removed from the luxury and nobility enjoyed by the elites that they had replaced. Quite the opposite, actually. The Abbasids were one of the Hashemite families closest to the Umayyads, a useful relationship which helped them surreptitiously amass power and evade suspicion for the decades it took to grow the da'wah. Anyway, Al-Mansur's mother, Salama, was nowhere near as highly regarded as Al-Saffah's. She was of Berber origin, which meant she was most probably a concubine before earning her freedom by giving birth to her illustrious son. His overwhelming success will make her the progenitor of the longest and most important Arab dynasty in history. So take that, Abdul Malik's widow. We know as little about Al-Mansur's upbringing as we do about his brothers, perhaps marginally more. While Al-Saffah doesn't come up at all before the Dawah's crescendo, Al-Mansur may have gained some experience in administration during his twenties. 
There are a couple accounts that claim he served as an assistant to a city governor somewhere east of Iraq, but they contain nothing sensational to report. It's hard to find reliable information on either of the Abbasids before the revolution. Then its epic backdrop generates more supernatural material than we usually come across. A good example is a story we find in Al-Mas'udi about the flight of the Abbasids to Kufa after Marwan II figured out that they were the house behind the Dawah. It says that as Al-Saffah, Al-Mansur, and their uncle Abdullah ibn Adi were making their way through the desert, they came across an old lady with mystical vision, and she immediately exclaimed at what a strange sight they made walking together like that. This confused them, and when they asked her what she meant, she said that she never expected to come across two caliphs and a carriageite side by side. It's hard to tell what the story is going for, probably just the divine providence, and there are other less subtle ones to pick from. The most butt-nakedly transparent is the one in which a 200-something-year-old man from Mecca makes his way to Kufa during Al-Saffah's attention. He saw the caliph in a yellow turban and told everyone at the mosque how back in his 60s he had personally heard the Prophet telling the early Ansar how one day a man from his clan in a yellow turban would rescue his ummah from the wicked clutches of the enemies of Islam. He went on to describe how as a child he had known both Hashim and Umayyah, telling stories about how the first walked around the Kaaba with his ten sons like the Alpha in a pride of lions, while Umayyah was a blind man whose slave had him tied to a leash so he wouldn't lose him while he led him across Mecca's busy marketplace. Now this one is obviously about dissing the Umayyads and justifying the Abbasid revolution by grounding it in some doubtful prophetic tradition. I don't think I have anything to add. The 200-year-old man really says it all. A lot of the material we find on Al-Saffah's five-year reign suffers from similar problems. I'm not saying it's full of magical old people, but it clearly prioritizes justifying the new dynasty over factuality. To put it mildly, it's not the kind of stuff I can build a defensible narrative with. The few usable bits we have about the caliph make him out to be a sensible, level-headed leader who never acted in haste nor kept a harem. That last bit is well attested to, but the incomparable al-Mas'udi uses this morsel to construct an entertaining story with some fine rhetoric. I won't be able to translate any of the good parts, but in a nutshell, one of the caliph's friends asked him why he spent his time with a single woman and spoke eloquently about the pleasures of a royal harem. Well, over the next couple days, the caliph's woman noticed him being more pensive, and after finding out what had made him so moody, she threatened the royal buddy with death unless he undid the damage he had caused. So the man went back to the caliph singing a different tune about how women are the worst, praising him for keeping his distance and so on. It's all quite funny, and if the content doesn't appeal to you, the rhetoric and language probably would, but you'll need an appreciation of good classical Arabic for that. Maybe it's unwise to waste so much time on these trivial details that don't really contribute much to the narrative going forward, so let's wrap up. Al-Saffah passed away in June 754, so sometime in his 30s. We'll assume his brother was a little younger than him, and say Al-Mansur was born in 719. Going with this timeline, Al-Mansur spent his first 30 years in the shadow of the Da'wah, maybe helping administer a minor town for a couple years at some point. Then following the revolution, he managed a large swath across the center of the caliphate on behalf of his brother for five years. He became caliph when he was 35, and as we heard last time, he had to start his reign by dealing with the rebellion of his uncle Abdullah ibn Adi and the threat he perceived from the ambitious Abu Muslim.
Okay, now for the second part of this episode. Let's describe this new Abbasid Caliphate, specifically what was so new about it. The short answer is the management, obviously, but such a change at the top had a significant impact on how this community we call the Ummah imagined and arranged itself. We'll start with the most conspicuous difference. The Caliphate's central province was no longer Syria, but Iraq. The Syrian tribes championed the Umayyads until the bitter end, making their lands and loyalties bad candidates for the Abbasids to base their new dynasty upon. On the other hand, many Iraqi tribes, especially the people of Kufa, supported the new regime wholeheartedly from the start, and the historic tensions between the Iraqis and Syrians, fanned to great effect by the Umayyads themselves, made the province a perfect choice to represent the Abbasid triumph over the unjust Syrian caliphate. Practically speaking, though, Iraq hadn't been a significant factor in the revolution. All the heavy lifting was done in Khurasan, largely by Abu Muslim and the Mawadi he had successfully organized under the Dawah's banner. While there's no disputing that the Abbasid revolution would have failed if it wasn't for this overwhelming support from the east, the clan never nurtured any personal ties to the region, so it's clear that they had no plans on moving everything over to there. In fact, you might recall how Ibrahim, the Abbasid who had first deputized Abu Muslim over the east, ordered him to send every man who spoke Arabic either in an army with Qahtaba to topple the Umayyads or straight to God. This major demographic change made Iraq the eastern edge of Arab society. But its geographic position at the heart of the caliphate made it a convenient administrative center for the new dynasty to rule from. The details of this new administration weren't all that different from the previous one, at least not on the surface. The lands were pretty much the same, and the schema was identical. There were three levels, provinces, districts, and major settlements, with a commander responsible for each. So, for example, the governor of Khurasan had commanders in charge of each of its districts, and they were responsible for overseeing sub-commanders, who were each assigned a staff, a small army, and the task of administering a settlement and its adjacent lands. The real difference was in who got these positions, and it's no surprise that loyalists of the new regime replaced those of the old one. What's notable, however, was that since the new regime had plenty of adherents in the east, where it had been secretly growing its base of support for decades, the men in charge of these lands were now far less tyrannical than their predecessors and were pretty deeply invested in the welfare of their people. Those living in and around Syria weren't so lucky. The new men in charge of those parts tried to impress their bosses by being cruel, usually under the pretense of hunting for hidden supporters of the Umayyads or punishing anti-Abbasid sentiment. This may be a bit anecdotal, but in my hometown of Beirut, a city with a deep contempt for history, which pathologically destroys anything having to do with its own past as a way of lobotomizing its residents, there is still a shrine commemorating the bravery of a religious elder who stood up to this Abbasid violence. Abdul Rahman al-Uzai was disgusted with the wanton cruelty of the province's new masters, and he wrote to the caliph and the governor, chastising them for their un-Islamic behavior. He must have at least succeeded in halting the persecution of the locals living in the mountains and along the coasts of Lebanon, because tens of thousands of Jews and Christians attended Al-Uzai's funeral, an honor these insular communities never bestowed upon any other figure in early Arab history that I'm aware of. So that covers most of the Asian part of the Ummah, and the Abbasids will properly extend into the Caliphate's African domains over the course of Al-Mansur's reign. 
Egypt had long been considered as pro-Umayyad as Syria, but it switched hands without incident after its armies had no problem recognizing the legitimacy of the new dynasty. Many even welcomed the new order, a stark reminder of how Umayyad power and influence had waned in the years before the Abbasid rebellion. While Egypt will remain as important as ever, the province's distance from the new capital will alter its relationship to the caliphate over the long run, something to watch out for. Ifriqiya, or Tunis, with its capital Qairawan, also came into the fold without too much trouble, and it will go on to serve as a launching point for the reconquest of the rest of the North African coast. I would take you through the caliphate's other provinces, but there's 14 of them in total and little purpose in getting into their details. There's more to this shift of power to the east than the capital moving to Iraq. You've probably noticed how all the victorious armies recently, from Qahtaba's revolutionary mass to Abu Muslim's triumph over the rebellious Abdullah ibn Ali, had significant Khurasani elements. It's not that the people of the east had superior equipment or unique fighting techniques. It's probably a mix of their sheer number and how much more united in purpose they were when contrasted to the tribal armies fighting against them. There's no such thing as a tribal feud with these folks. And within a few decades, this rift which consumed so much of our time and attention during the Umayyad era will vanish. Not yet, though. Even under the capable al-Mansur, we'll hear about some tribal commotion every now and again. Now, obviously, the ebbing of this tribal feud is a net gain for the community, but some commentators point to it as proof of a decline in Arab power. The thing about the feud... The thing about the feud is it was a characteristic element of tribal societies. As tribes grew, they formed larger coalitions, and as they jostled against one another, conflicts gave way to broader alignments of interest. Between the snuffing out of the tribal feud and the increase in other ethnicities serving in the caliph's armies, we have good reason to pause and consider what exactly was going on. Now you know me, I'd like nothing more than to sit around and speculate about Arab power and whether it was rising or falling but the reign of al-Mansur will make all speculation unnecessary. We'll get to that in due course. For now, let's round out the major changes by mentioning a couple new court innovations we begin to hear about after the Abbasids come to power. Basically, two new positions in the caliph's orbit suddenly became very prominent, those of the hajib and the wazir. Hajib wasn't a new job. It used to be what everyone called the caliph's head bodyguard, and the Umayyads had kept one around since way back in the days of Muawiyah. In the Abbasid Caliphate, the Hajib comes off more like the one who controls all access to the Caliph, like a well-armed personal assistant or head Praetorian guard. We're told the Abbasid Caliphs sat on raised platforms or beds and withdrew behind a curtain guarded by the Hajib. Anti-Abbasid histories say that this is evidence that Persian customs of divine kingship were infecting Islam, but I'm pretty sure they exaggerate just to suit their defamatory agendas. I don't think the Hajib had so much power this early on. Al-Saffah may have skipped out on the harem, but he spent a great deal of time with the boys, and reports of their hangouts are all pretty standard. Wazir is, or will become, Arabic for chief minister, and I used the word last time when I referred to Abu Salma al-Khalal by one of his popular honorifics, the vizier of the Prophet's clan. Well, he is said to have been the first wazir of the Abbasids, but as with the role of the Hajib, I believe that the histories are jumping the gun a little. 
Yes, over time, every Abbasid caliph will come to rely on far more capable men to run his caliphate for him, and the relationship between caliph and wazir will evolve to resemble that between a company's owner and its CEO, to be unhelpfully capitalist about it, but that won't be until much later. The dynasty was still young. The caliph had to personally legitimize his clan's status and couldn't afford to disappear into some walled pleasure garden with someone else to look after his business. At least not yet. There were, of course, other important roles within the caliphate. The only reason I mention these two and their supposed prominence is because they help us anticipate the kinds of objections we'll find to Abbasid rule in our sources from here on out. To put it in a nutshell, caliphs will be charged with delegating all real authority to their wazir and withdrawing behind an impenetrable veil of divinity and state violence. These accusations of pretending to holiness and leaving matters of state to a non-Qurayshi bureaucracy are pretty different from the ones we find levied at the Umayyads, about being godless and exhibiting shameless nepotism and tribal bias. Keeping this in mind helps us understand how the two dynasties were perceived by these Arab histories. We could go on drawing contrasts between the Umayyad and Abbasid dynasties, be they social, cultural, religious, demographic, or otherwise, but let's end our comparison here and return the focus to the great caliph himself. I'd like to begin our preliminary discussion of al-Mansur's reign with the story we find in al-Mas'udi. It's nothing crazy, it just has the new caliph talking about some of the Umayyads who preceded him. Addressing some of the top Abbasids of his time, he called Abdul Malik a mighty titan who could do no wrong. He skipped over Walid and said Sulaiman only cared about his gaping mouth and other orifices. Ew. The famously devout Omar II was called a one-eyed man among the blind, which I guess is a way of saying he was all right for an Umayyad, proving once again that our sources find it impossible to impinge on anyone with a reputation for piety. Al-Mansur concluded by saying that Hisham was the only worthy man among the lot, that he showed up for his clan and they owed their last decades all to him. It is fitting that he should praise Hisham and venerate Abdul Malik, as he will go on to lay down a foundation as firm as the one Abdul Malik had for his clan, and his reign will force him to fight off threats from all directions to hold the Ummah together, as Hisham had. By the end of it, Al-Mansur will have outdone both of these great Umayyad caliphs earning his place in world history. I'm still not sure how I'm going to cover his reign. Let's try to work this out together right here and now, though I do reserve the right to change my mind as I go along summarizing his many achievements and social endeavors. Abdul Malik and Hisham each took me four episodes to get through, and I felt like they sort of disappeared into the background when we broke their reigns up thematically, something I am hoping to avoid with Al-Mansur. A chronological romp through his time in charge is not an option, as it just gets too busy and complicated, so we'll still need to use a thematic approach, but this time I'm hoping to somehow keep him in the spotlight. He was incredibly hands-on, so I have that working in my favor. Though to be honest, so were Hisham and his pa. And looking back, I feel like I didn't do enough to bring them out. But let's not dwell on the past, something I probably shouldn't say in a podcast about history. In order to start on the right foot, we will next map out Al-Mansur's reign and take a look at the major struggles which lay ahead of him. Now most of these weren't new to the Caliphate. We've actually already mentioned them in passing, so no long introductions are necessary. This impression I was telling you about earlier, that Arab power was being eroded by the newfound influence of the Mawadi, that was a big one, 
and one of the earliest challenges Al-Mansur had to deal with. Maybe framing it like that is a little problematic. What I mean to say is that he had to find a way to make sure that Arabs were still invested in the new dynasty, even as it no longer based its power on them exclusively. As you can imagine, this was by no means a straightforward matter, and there wasn't one thing Al-Mansur could do to address it. Killing Abu Muslim was a good start, but it opened up a Pandora's box in Khurasan, and we'll talk about that next time. More practical challenge was picking a capital. Al-Saffah had flitted around Iraq in search of a place for his court, starting with the obvious Kufa before moving to Hira and finally Al-Anbar. Al-Mansur was probably just continuing that hunt for the perfect spot when he founded his own court. At first it was simply known as Mansur's city, then the round city as its circular walls defined its imposing geometry, and finally, as it grew beyond all expectations, it took on the name of a nearby town called Baghdad. The new Abbasid Caliphate would go on to become the world's largest and by many measures most advanced city. The founding of Baghdad occupies a considerable part of al-Mansur's legacy in Arab memory, and I find it a little ironic how his easiest decision overshadowed all these other complex strategic choices he had to make to deal with his real problems. So returning to these real problems, al-Mansur's first concern was the backlash he faced from executing Abu Muslim, with all its attendant consequences for the relationship between the East and the new caliphate. It'll turn out to be a complicated affair with several implications for Arab power, both regionally and in general. Al-Mansur's other major threat, the one which I would say loomed largest in his mind, was the one posed by the Hashemites. While these kin had not tried anything during Al-Safaf's reign, Al-Mansur will face open opposition, and his response, like so many of his decisions, will prove fateful. That's another theme we will have to tackle in its own episode. And in it, we will also get into other reasons this was an interesting time for the Hashemites, whose clan leader, Jafar al-Sadiq, is considered the original expounder of Shia jurisprudence. The sect won't break away from the Ummah's orthodoxy just yet, but his efforts will go a long way towards defining Shiism, which still uses Jafari courts to this day. So after an episode on the East and the Ummah's new relationship with the Mawali, then another one on the Hashemites and their status, we'll probably turn to Al-Mansur's foreign challenges. Some of these were pretty limited affairs, like small changes on the Chinese front and minor squabbles in the Sudan. Then there were more protracted projects, like the reconquest of lands lost during the Great Berber Revolt and the wars with Byzantium. The part that will take the most time, however, will be Andalusia where we will hear about the incredible story of a man who took it over and founded an Arab dynasty, independent of the Abbasids, all the way in Spain. I'm sure these international affairs all sound like a real handful, but they were never the caliph's main concern. Like his half-brother before him, al-Mansur dedicated his attention to the threat from the Hashemites, though his execution of Abu Muslim meant he also had to re-establish a stable relationship with the people of the East. So that's the next three episodes, and we'll still need to squeeze in a discussion of Baghdad, the intellectual development of the Ummah, the religious implications of the new dynasty leaning on its kinship with the Prophet, and a host of other developments which took place during the two decades Al-Mansur spent in charge, not to mention the matter of his succession. I'll try and include as many details as I can to give our rendition of Al-Mansur more color, 
but there's only so much I can squeeze in without distracting the conversation, and we might end up needing an extra episode for all this stuff. We'll see. Like I said, I haven't really made up my mind yet. But right now, I believe we'll have to give each of the themes we highlighted its own space, or time. Although we didn't meet any new members of the Ummah, nor cover any of its dramatic history, plenty of what we discussed today gives us more insight into the Caliphate following the Abbasid Revolution. It was also important for us to survey Al-Mansur's upcoming challenges and priorities. Scoping out his reign should help us frame his many accomplishments and see how they fit into empowering the new dynasty. Next time, we'll take a look at this Caliph in action, as he dealt with some of the many post-Abu Muslim rebellions he faced in the East and what all that meant for the Ummah, here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Aaron Powell.